Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Violet Podcast, in which we use the events at Batley Grammar School in the north of England to go off on a rant that we've been threatening to have for quite a few episodes now about freedom of speech. As always, this podcast is only going to scratch the surface of all the things there are to say, Uh, so if there's anything else you'd like us to discuss, if you have any comments or questions about it, uh, please do get in contact with us through Twitter, at at underscore the violet underscore through email to contact.theviolet at gmail.com or via our website. And as is befitting of a podcast on freedom of speech, we finally leave an uncomfortable joke in the final edit. Thanks for listening. So for those of you who might not have kept up with this particular news story, in an RE lesson in a school called Batley Grammar School near Leeds, uh, a teacher showed his class a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad as part of a discussion about um, blasphemy. Uh, Many of his students were Muslim and took offence to his showing of this cartoon, obviously went home and told their parents, And this began a protest outside the school gates um, to have the teacher possibly fired, but at the very least disciplined. Yeah, and I think worth noting, the reason the cartoon uh, was offensive is because it is generally held in Islam uh, that depictions of of people or of Allah's creations uh, should not be allowed. And specifically because Muhammad was the representative of Allah, the final prophet, he holds a special position, and therefore, whilst there may be ambiguity amongst most Muslims about whether you can take photographs of yourself uh, or you know post on Snapchat, it's fairly clear cut for most Muslims that depicting Muhammad is forbidden, um, and specifically depicting him in an offensive manner, as the Charlie Hebdo cartoon did. Um, apparently, the cartoon that was shown portrays him with a bomb in place of a turban uh, is especially not allowed or deeply offensive. Since then, the teacher in question has been suspended, but the protests outside the school have continued. And part of what's made this story particularly confusing is that there is very little information on uh, who is actually protesting, to what extent the protesters outside the school are um, parents of the students at the school or members of the local community, to what extent they are just um, Muslims from around the country who are offended by this, Uh, There also seems to be no particular sort of agreement on what the protesters actually uh, want and what they are demanding. In terms of the protesters themselves, uh, I don't think there's any suggestions that Muslims are flooding into Batley from around the country to protest this specific issue. Um, From what I've seen in the news, there seems to be a mixture of people being interviewed at the protest who are parents of children uh, and others who are just members of the local community, which I think is actually... Uh, or I think that Batley is actually around 40% uh, Muslim. So there is a sizable local community which is doing the bulk of the active in-person protesting, but this has obviously also offended Muslims uh, around the country and in other parts of the world where they have heard of this dispute. Right. I don't know to what extent that's true. I was just reporting what I've, what I've seen. So the news has mostly focused on the protests and the protesters. Um, 
what we'd like to do as per usual is take a more sort of broad view of this and zoom out to look at um, blasphemy, what blasphemy is, to what extent it's acceptable, to what extent it's acceptable for the government to do something about it, and look at some other examples of that. Um, but also to put this in the context of a broader discussion about free speech, what is and isn't acceptable to say, and what the government can do about offensive speech in general. So out of that, the first thing to ask is, uh, what is blasphemy? What does that mean? So the common definition of blasphemy is that it's uh, an act, a physical act or an act of speech, uh, which is deemed to be offensive or disrespectful to a core or important religious tenet uh, of, of any religion. Um, so in this case, uh, as we said before, depicting the prophet would be offensive uh, and it would be disrespectful because the view is that Muhammad is the uh, the last prophet, the final prophet of Allah, uh, Allah and Allah is incomprehensible and boiling those kind of huge sacred things down to a visual representation is inherently offensive and disrespectful. And we don't actually know which cartoon it was exactly that was shown in the school, uh, but there certainly exist a lot of cartoons, certainly out of the satirical, and I use that word uh, generously, uh, French magazine Charlie Hebdo, which has a history of printing very offensive cartoons of just about everybody, including the Prophet Muhammad. Um, if it was one of those cartoons, then it was explicitly offensive, as well as just being a picture of the Prophet Muhammad. So on the face of it, it seems that blasphemy is unambiguously a bad thing, that uh, offending somebody's religion, saying something or drawing something or whatever that is offensive to a whole religious group is is a bad thing, right? That's effectively racism. And in many countries, there are laws against blasphemy, and you can be imprisoned or fined or even put to death for offending uh, fundamental religious tenets. In fact, uh, Britain had a blasphemy law for a very long time, which was only repealed in England and Wales in 2008, in Scotland in 2021, and is still in force in Northern Ireland. And given this is something which therefore has important legal ramifications, um, both in the UK uh, and all around the world, it's important to understand why blasphemy is a very tricky concept to apply uh, in an objective, clear-cut way. The first reason that's the case is because it's very difficult to distinguish between blasphemy and statements of belief, which have no intent to be offensive at all. Um, the most uh, accessible example I can think of is that in Islam, it is held that Allah is one, he has no sons, he, has, he, he begets no one, Allah is this perfect, incomprehensible being. Um, whereas in Christianity, it is explicitly an article of faith that Jesus is a son of God or an extension of God in some way. In Islam, Jesus is just another human being. So the statement in Christianity that Jesus is the son of God is blasphemous in Islam and vice versa. The statement in Islam that Jesus is just a human being, albeit a very important prophet, is blasphemous to Christians. Right, and so you don't have to be going out of your way to offend someone to potentially be committing blasphemy. And in many cases, there is no, or in some cases like that with articles of belief, there is no uh, line which isn't blasphemous. Saying that Jesus was the son of God is blasphemous to Jews and Muslims. Saying Jesus was not the son of God is blasphemous to Christians. 
So that's the kind of first case in which blasphemy is very tricky to apply, where two people have very sincerely held religious beliefs which are mutually incompatible, uh, and effectively stating those beliefs is mutually blasphemy against each other. Uh, the second case is perhaps even more tricky because it may involve uh, a situation where one party is not making a religious statement or performing a religious action at all, uh, but another party could still interpret it as blasphemous. Uh, the example that springs to mind uh, in contemporary global politics is India uh, and the very frequent extrajudicial lynchings uh, of Muslims and Christians in India by Hindu mobs because those Muslims or Christians have been accused, rightly or wrongly, of eating beef. Uh, and because cows are sacred in Hinduism, that is seen as blasphemous and offensive by uh, Hindutva extremists. Now, those Muslims, those Christians who are eating beef, or indeed some Hindus, because there are many Hindus in Rajasthan who eat beef as well, um, they are not making a statement of religious belief. They are just going about their everyday lives. Um, but if you take the concept of blasphemy to its logical extreme, they are blaspheming, and if you believe that blasphemy must have some punishment, then you are effectively saying whether through the law or through these mobs they should be punished. And there's a key thing you mentioned there that we need to remember here as well, which is that we can't treat um, religions as uniform, homogenous blocks where everyone believes the same thing. Um, there are approximately 2 billion Christians in the world, approximately 2 billion Muslims, um, different people within those groups believe wildly different things. And even within one religion, there may be, or indeed there are, um, deep uh, divisions and arguments over what is blasphemous and what is not. And to bring that back to this exact issue, we're talking about the, the cartoons of the Prophet uh, Muhammad. Uh, in the case of Charlie Hebdo, uh, I think we can all agree those cartoons were just gratuitously offensive. There was no attempt at a clever theological debate, they were just designed to offend. Um, but the very issue of whether depictions of the Prophet are allowed is a controversial one historically within Islam um, between, well, I, this is from my own area of expertise, I don't know if it exists outside of this, uh, but I know that between the 14th and the 20th centuries uh, in Persia, or what is now Iran, and the Ottoman Empire, uh, miniature depictions of the Prophet were quite common. They didn't show his face, it was always veiled, and he was surrounded by like an aura or a halo of fire. Um, but those were quite um, frequent depictions. It's also worth noting that um, the, the ban on depictions uh, in Abrahamic faiths stems from the same sort of story of uh, Moses and the Lamb, uh, and yeah, different Abrahamic faiths and different branches take this with different seriousness. Um, uh, Islam is not my sort of area of expertise, but certainly in different branches of Christianity, uh, Methodists and uh, other sort of Protestant uh, Christian groups often have completely unadorned churches for this reason, and any and images and statues are generally considered to be uh, bordering on idolatry, whereas Catholic places of worship are absolutely stacked to the gunnels with massive statues of Mary. Yeah, and if you um, look at the Hagia Sophia, which has recently been converted into a mosque in, in Istanbul, um, I've seen a lot of people, uh, mostly Christian or Greek nationalists online, saying, look at how badly the Turks have damaged this church. Um, but actually, the majority of the damage to the mosaics in the Hagia Sophia uh, were done by 
the Byzantines in periods of iconoclasm where they leaned more heavily towards this argument that no, we shouldn't show pictures and smashed up a ton of mosaics. Um, it was actually relatively well preserved uh, under the Ottoman Empire. So the point of all of that mess <laughs> is to say it doesn't matter whether we're talking about one religion or all religions, whether we're talking about particularly multicultural societies like Britain or not, what is blasphemy is actually an extremely difficult question to answer and is the first thing we need to bear in mind when we consider how um, difficult this topic is. And indeed, we often talk about the idea of freedom of religion um, in, in modern societies and freedom of religion being important, but fundamentally, it is impossible to have freedom of religion unless you also have a freedom to blaspheme and say things and interpret your religion and believe and act in a way that other people may disagree with. Unless you have the right to say things to do with a religion that other people disagree with, you don't really have freedom of religion. And it's worth noting how many of the major religions that are around today and the major denominations within those religions um, began as heretical offshoots of other established religions. And without the freedom uh, for people to disagree with whatever the sort of contemporary interpretation is and uh, form their own beliefs and their own interpretations, we wouldn't have most of, if not all, the religions that are around today. Yeah, and well, the, the most obvious example of that is is Islam. Um, Islam begins as a, as a heresy against established uh, beliefs of Christianity and Judaism uh, and the pagan religions that were followed in Mecca and Medina at the time. Um, or actually, perhaps even a more obvious example, if the Catholic Church uh, was to be believed around 2,000 years ago, um, yesterday, uh, Jesus was crucified for heresy against uh, the Jewish faith, uh, claiming he was the Son of God or the Messiah. Absolutely. So I, I guess the point we're coming to is that um, especially Christians and Muslims, but obviously lots of other people as well, uh, who think that any form of, of, of blasphemy or any form of heresy is, well, is heresy, is, is despicable, um, don't particularly have a leg to stand on. And the analogy I use to explain this sort of foot in the door to students is usually uh, the self-service checkouts at supermarkets and how many times you'll have somebody uh, being really slow, making sure their bags are packed perfectly, just really just faffing around and there's a big queue and people in the queue are getting really angry at the, the people at the checkout for how long they're taking to balance their eggs on the top. And then when it's their turn and they're through to the checkout, they take the coat off, they sort of, you know, hang up their shoes, really scan those eggs really slowly and balance them. Uh, and that once people are, it, it's very easy when your particular group is in a position of power to say, well, we need to, we need to limit the power of other groups, but every group comes from somewhere, every group springs from somewhere, every group has to grow in the first place. So off the back of that, that discussion about how, how difficult blasphemy is to define and how it means different things to different people, we should probably return to the fact that blasphemy laws still exist uh, in around a quarter of the countries in the world. And the punishment for blasphemy in different countries uh, varies massively, but it is still punishable by death in Mauritania, Nigeria, Somalia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Brunei. And this leads to some pretty horrific uh, stories. 
one case that springs to mind is that of Asya Bibi, who was a Pakistani woman, uh, a Christian woman, accused of blasphemy after an argument with her neighbours in 2011. Uh, and in the aftermath of that accusation, she was beaten, she was put on trial, and she was condemned to death. Uh, fortunately, she has since managed to to leave Pakistan and claim asylum somewhere else. I'm not sure where. Canada. You, Canada. Um, Canada. But yeah, she, she didn't uh, end up getting executed. Um, in the aftermath of her, her conviction and uh, in the context of this case, massive waves of violence swept across um, eastern Pakistan and the Punjab. So Salman Taseer, who was the governor of Punjab at the time, he criticised uh, the blasphemy law and filed a, a mercy petition saying that she should not be convicted under this law. Um, Tasir's bodyguard later murdered him. So the governor of Punjab was murdered uh, for arguing that blasphemy laws should not exist. Uh, he was then arrested and hanged. And the execution of that bodyguard then sparked further protests. Uh, a mosque in Islamabad was named after him. And in the wave of these protests, there were more violence, more injuries, uh, and more intercommunal tensions. Um, the minorities minister of Pakistan, who was also a Christian, uh, was also assassinated in the wave of these protests. So whilst Asya Bibi did manage to uh, escape with her life, many other lives were lost because of uh, the accusation against her of blasphemy. Uh, and she was only acquitted five years after uh, her original trial. So she was, despite the fact that she was eventually uh, released and managed to seek asylum, she did have to spend five years in Pakistani prison. And perhaps the most terrifying um, sort of uh, fact about this case is that all of this violence and strife and trouble began from an argument, uh, a verbal argument, in which no one knows for sure what was said. And as Yabibi um, maintained throughout this entire the entire story, that she hadn't even said anything blasphemous. Uh, this was a neighbour who disliked her. They'd had previous arguments about other things. And this neighbour decided that a good way to end this argument would be to accuse her of blasphemy. So I think what's important to pull out of this is that blasphemy laws are extremely dangerous. They are routinely used uh, to persecute minorities in any country. Um, and this is not an attempt at Muslim bashing saying that Muslims are the worst and Muslims are the ones restricting free speech. That is not the case. More generally, um, any laws against free speech or free expression are used to target minorities. Uh, China is an example where the minorities would be Muslims, the Uyghurs, uh, and are being targeted by the Chinese state for saying or doing things which the Chinese state feels contradict with well, CCP uh, philosophy and doctrine. Um, so recently, the Chinese uh, government put out some press releases explaining why certain Uyghurs had been detained or imprisoned, uh, and some of them had been imprisoned just for saying things in a textbook that was used in the region that the Chinese government didn't like. Um, I think the exact uh, the exact detail of it was that they were talking about some Uyghur people standing up to hand soldiers decades in the past, and that was seen as an attempt to incite ethnic hatred. And you mentioned a very good example earlier of cow-based violence in India, where Muslims are often accused of blasphemy, and violence against Muslims is committed in the name of avenging blasphemy. So this is not an argument saying Muslims are especially bad. This is an argument saying restrictions on free speech, particularly in the form of blasphemy laws, are bad because they are used to target minorities. 
regardless of whether you think they may be used in a benevolent way to safeguard respect and intercommunal harmony, they are almost always used in reality to target minorities. And that is what the statistical empirical evidence shows. So blasphemy laws are generally considered to be illiberal. There is not, certainly in our opinion, a strong argument to maintain that blasphemy should be illegal. And given that it remains illegal in a part of this country, it is actually something we believe we should be campaigning against more strongly. However, whether the uh, events at Batley Grammar um, really focus around blasphemy or whether we should be looking at them through another lens is an interesting question. So um, one of the uh, interviews that I was reading on the news with a a local Muslim man was saying that it was uh, more the fact that this was an Islamophobic cartoon that actually he was upset about. If it was, according to the reports, the Charlie Hebdo cartoon of Prophet Muhammad with a bomb for a head, uh, this is not just a depiction which is... Uh, perfectly acceptable in some cultures, but offensive in others. This is a, it was a deliberately offensive, um, it was a deliberately offensive, deliberately Islamophobic image. And that leads us onto the question of to what extent should free speech laws defend people's right to be racist? So this would fall under the bracket of, of hate speech. Um, and a generally accepted line or belief is that free speech should be allowed, but it should be restricted where it incites violence against a particular group uh, or it has the potential to cause harm. And this is quite a hazy line because you can you can point to examples which are clearly on either side of this line. For example, if you drew a stick man and called it the Prophet Muhammad, it is offensive, but it's not really an incitement to violence or harm. Um, whereas on the other side of the line, very clearly, Uh, If you had a far-right organisation saying, we should kill Muslims, that is very clearly incitement to harm. Um, The Batley grammar case is interesting because it falls kind of on the line in the middle. Uh, This cartoon was obviously designed to be offensive, but could we say that it is inciting harm against Muslims or it makes harm against Muslims more likely? This links also to a lot of of other aspects in in contemporary global politics uh, and specifically the concept of stochastic terrorism, which is the idea that you are not explicitly telling someone to commit acts of violence or terror, um, but you are effectively fueling people's perceptions in such a way that it makes violence and terror very, very likely. Even though you don't know exactly what form it will take, it is almost certain that because of your actions and your words, it will happen. A good example is in, uh, well, just a few months ago, Uh, Donald Trump, after losing the election to Joe Biden, repeatedly claiming the election was rigged, it was fraudulent, illegal immigrants were voting, Um, there was some kind of secret international cabal of the Chinese and uh, Peter Valls and various other countries conspiring against him. Uh, And he obviously didn't call for specific acts of violence against the Capitol building, but it was fairly obvious that his fueling of this conspiracy would mean that some violence would happen against elected officials or the Democrats uh, or the US democratic process. Um, And in the case of Batley Grammar, we also have to ask the question, this is obviously not an incitement, a direct incitement to violence, but could it be viewed as part of a wider, broader uh, stroke of hate speech? So there's a lot to unpick in that. 
And something that I think we need to make very clear um, is that there are, when we talk about free speech and when we talk about what it is acceptable and unacceptable to say, there are two very distinct uh, arguments within that that people often conflate. One of which is, um, what is it morally acceptable or unacceptable to say? What makes you a bad person for saying it to other people? What is perfectly acceptable to say? And the other is the legal case. And there is often a conflation of the two where people think that a statement that is clearly racist, sexist, homophobic, offensive, upsetting, whatever, and morally wrong to say in conversation to someone else should therefore be illegal. And that's not necessarily the case. What is, um, what is offensive and uh, wrong and makes you a bad person to say is not necessarily the same as what should uh, carry legal consequences if you say it. And there are multiple reasons for that. Perhaps the most obvious uh, links back to the Azit Bibi case, that um, that whole legal case was just surrounding uh, two people's sides of a story about a conversation. The conversation wasn't recorded in any way. All we know about what happened in that conversation is what the uh, prosecution and the defence say happened. Uh, and so laws against saying particular things are very easy to abuse if we have no proof of what somebody said. It's also worth bringing in what we said earlier about the fact that what is offensive uh, is different for different people. And so uh, laws against saying things which are offensive in practice uh, have a tendency of uh, defending the majority group whether that's an ethnic group, whether that's a um, religious group, or whether that's just a more powerful group rather than a majority in the case of uh, sexism. Um, laws against saying things which are offensive tend to protect the interests of those people, not minorities. And of course, what is offensive for different groups is different. Um, and just to give a contemporary example of that, I think we can see that when a government begins to implement laws restricting free speech or um, forcing people or asking, saying to people they must act in a certain way or they must do certain things, it does seem to generally benefit the interests of the majority. So with the current government, it's the whole thing like, you know, you're not waving your flag enough, you're not being patriotic enough, you don't love the Queen enough, you can't talk about slavery and colonialism in that way. It's, uh, I can't remember who said it, one of the government ministers called it a Caribbean experience. So it's the, it's the idea that when you start putting more restrictions on free speech, what tends to happen is that the interests of the majority are defended rather than the interests of minorities protected. And this um, is a good time to raise something that you've said consistently over the course of the podcasts, that when we're talking about uh, political institutions and the way the government works and the way the law works, we have to view it in the most objective way we can. And we can't just uh, focus on the way the government should be run as if the people running the government are our favourite people who agree with us on everything and who are perfectly benevolent and knowledgeable. When we're designing or thinking about how political systems should be designed, we should design them with the worst possible people in mind. So one thing which I've spent several years trying to hash out in my head and still haven't really come to an answer is where exactly is this line between just being wantonly offensive and hate speech. Because there is a distinction. I think you can be very offensive without um, causing harm or without making harm more likely versus speech that is actually likely to cause harm. 
And I think one of the greatest difficulties in this is deciding who gets to arbitrate that and who gets to decide um, one or the other. This distinction, I think, has to be a legal one, because if you are saying something is hate speech, you are saying there have to be legal consequences, and therefore, in my opinion, it has to be up to courts. Um, and many people would say that it's difficult to hand that power over to, um, you know, over to unelected judges uh, and justices, but that is literally the way that the legal system works. Uh, the law is there, it has to be applied to a variety of different cases, whatever the law is. Uh, and it is up to judges and juries to decide whether or not someone has breached the law in a specific instance. What's a bit more tricky is uh, trying to decide whether we think there should be consequences simply for being offensive. And as we said, we don't think there should be legal consequences for just being offensive as long as it isn't hate speech. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there can't be consequences from society in general or from, from your employer uh, or from corporations that you are part of or attached to, uh, because that is not legal persecution. That is just you facing the consequences of your actions. Absolutely. And the danger of enshrining what is the bounds of what's acceptable and what's offensive in law and in government is that... Um, a, that potentially hands too much power to majority groups who can then decide that and the uh, the decision of the sort of the majority group that wins power in government over what's offensive may be very, very different, if not diametrically different to that of, that of other groups, as, as we've talked about. And it also prevents that from evolving over time um, as, as part of the... Uh, sort of research we were doing for this, I was looking at um, a lot of films uh, that have been banned in the UK for being too offensive on, on various different measures. Um, and if you go back sort of uh, 50, 60, 70, 100 years, the, um, the things that films are being banned for is, is sort of hilariously mild. <laughs> um, and moral standards change over time. And if we enshrine them in law, we don't allow for that to happen. What, what was the last film that was banned? The last film to be banned in the UK was um, the. It was called the Gestapo's Last Orgy. <laughs> it was banned this year, um, and I, I didn't research any further about what it was about. I, I shall take your word for it, but it sounds like a Max Mosley home tape. Um, <laughs> you can't include that now. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely. I think that's absolutely fine. So the point is that what's offensive what's considered offensive by society at large um, evolves over time and is very difficult to pin down. And part of the reason it's very difficult to pin down in law as well is that um, what's offensive can be to do with uh, use of particular words, uh, which is quite easy to test, um, or it can be to do with the message behind it, which is much more difficult. And one thing that... Um, I want to avoid using the word right wing. One thing that conservative commentators have got, I think, better at in recent years is finding ways to phrase really very racist opinions using language that, taken in isolation, is not offensive. Yeah, so um, I guess the comeback sort of colonial scientific racism uh, is one example of that, claiming that there are scientific or empirical bases for claiming that certain 
races in, in air quotes are less able or less intelligent or less good at certain things than the white race. Um, and again, none of those words in isolation are racist, um, but taken collectively, the message is horrifically racist. Um, and this can be seen quite frequently, I think, on Fox News, where they find all kinds of inventive, indirect ways uh, to be incredibly racist without using words which are in themselves uh, racist um, and make the implication that non-white people are less intelligent or less able uh, or, you know, cast aspersions on the on the criminality of, of Mexicans and Central Americans. Um, again, all without using language that is explicitly racist. And it is harder to test for that in law than it is to test for specific, obviously racist words. That isn't to say that it shouldn't be done and that we shouldn't try to determine what is hate speech, um, but just to point out that it's a tricky line. And one thing which is particularly dangerous arising from this discussion is that largely, I do think that free speech is now seen in the political arena as a right-wing issue. And that is not the case. Free speech is an issue that everyone uh, should care about, but particularly leftists and progressives, because again, if you start having laws against free speech enacted by a government, it is very likely that those free speech laws will defend the status quo, defend traditional morality, traditional beliefs, and make it harder for progressive voices to be heard uh, and for progress to be made. And this is not out of out of admiration or respect, but I think that populist right-wing parties have done very well um, by fencing off the free speech issue as a right-wing issue. Um, that is not to say that they are consistent in their beliefs. Uh, as we said, it is often the case that right-wing politicians will defend free speech as long as that is free speech to offend minority groups, uh, but they will be very much against free speech if it is anything that offends the traditional established uh, consensus. And this is what I meant earlier when I talked about um, morality evolving over time, is that um, what are now perfectly acceptable, um, nay, moral, uh, progressive viewpoints not very long ago in history would have been considered obscene. Perhaps the most sort of obvious, sudden, immediate example is um, acceptance of homosexuality, um, discussion of LGBT issues, which is now a sort of perfectly acceptable, uh, generally accepted uh, progressive idea. Only 30 years ago would have been considered um, obscene uh, conversation. Yeah, and I mean, that, that conversation has still been ongoing for the past two decades. Homophobia is still rife in society. The age of consent was only equalised, I think, in 2000. Civil partnerships are very new. Um, yeah, and same-sex marriage is very new, I think, only 2015 under Cameron's government. So this is still an ongoing discussion. Absolutely. So I'm not trying to say that, that <laughs> homophobia is over, but that uh, laws against free speech would probably have prevented the progress that has happened from happening um, because not very long ago, those calling for um, restrictions on speech would have been calling for restrictions on people calling for gay rights. Whereas nowadays, the calls for restrictions on, on free speech tend to be from the left um, restricting homophobic views instead. Conversely, it is also worth noting, I think, that 
if we accept um, LGBT rights are now an established moral consensus in the UK, which by all available data, most people do now seem to agree with that. If we then implemented free speech law saying you can't offend those rights, you can't question those rights, it would mean a lot of churches and mosques and other places of religious worship which have to be closed down or quite substantially alter their preaching. Yeah, I, I was I was less thinking about that and more thinking about the fact that um, progressive ideas, as the name suggests, uh, move along, and what is the orthodoxy of of, of the pro- of progressive groups uh, changes, and that if we take um, the sort of the moral standards of what it means, what LGBT rights are campaigning for at any given point in time, those will be different as we move forward. And so had we sort of enshrined what is and isn't uh, offensive speech based around gender and sexuality 10 years ago, um, that would make the trans rights movement of today much more difficult to have. Well, I mean, for a long time it wasn't trying, like Section 28 under under Thatcher and schools banning the discussion of homosexuality in a positive light, which basically means you can't mention homosexuality unless you say it's bad. Um, and that definitely set back the LGBT cause by years or decades. Um, again, very clear to see that if we start putting in free speech restrictions, like we've been saying for the entire podcast, it, they just generally exist to defend a status quo. Another argument we haven't really considered yet is the extent to which uh, restrictions on people's ability to say something actually changes their beliefs. Because part of any argument for restricting racist speech is uh, preventing offence to people and preventing harm in the form of offence to people uh, and possibly worse. But part of it is also um, aimed at removing those ideas from society. And it's very, very difficult to collect any sort of statistics on this, but we can to a certain extent doubt uh, how effective preventing people from speaking about something is in changing their minds. And the big sort of piece of evidence for this that was quite shocking for a lot of people is probably Brexit and the fact that the the anti-immigrant rhetoric that um, uh, was whipped up in the years prior to that by uh, UKIP and associates um, gained popularity very quickly and this was very confusing to a lot of people um, as to sort of where all these racists had come from, quote unquote. And the general sort of consensus is that those ideas were prevalent in the UK, but a lot of people felt that they were unable to express their anti-immigration views uh, because the sort of the the political culture at the time didn't include people who spoke in that sort of way. And as soon as people, uh, politicians appeared who did speak in that way, those ideas came to the fore. And actually those ideas had not disappeared from society at all. They had just been quiet. I guess the counter-argument to that is that there is a distinction between the restriction of free speech for private and public arenas, for private and public individuals. If you know a random bloke in a pub makes a homophobic or a sexist joke, he is a horrible person, but the thought police should not turn up at the door, break down Weatherspoons and you know cart him away. Um, by contrast, if you have a very high-profile political figure, someone like Farage... Uh, or someone like Trump, uh, someone like Marine Le Pen in in France, uh, someone like the AFD in Germany, 
should restrictions be placed on their free speech if they if they stray over that line into uh, what we might call hate speech or offence or the likelihood of inciting that view more widely amongst society. Um, that's a very difficult issue, and again, it has to be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. But I do think there is much more of an argument for legally restricting the, the speech of high-profile political figures uh, because they have much more of a capacity to affect the way that people think on a society-wide scale. Absolutely. And in terms of uh, journalists and in terms of sort of media in general, uh, that's especially so because these people have sat down and thought about what they're saying, what they're writing, what they're recording, whatever, uh, as opposed to someone making a, a really rather untasteful joke uh, in a pub. Um Politicians get more difficult, though, because uh, part of the process of politics is establishing um, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable in society. And as we mentioned in the last podcast, um, Donald Trump is a reasonably good reflection of a large portion of America. Now, um, the question we're sort of, the issue we're sort of uh, tangling with here is to what extent uh, politicians are simply reflections of the groups that elect them and to what extent they change those ideas. That's a very good point. And I mean, I think it's far beyond the scope of this this podcast to answer. Um, but something which I did think about yesterday is Donald Trump has fallen off the, the map surprisingly quickly after being banned from Twitter. And I'm not saying it's just the consequence of Twitter. But once, you know, people stopped amplifying his, his speech and once the media stopped caring about him, he has disappeared surprisingly quickly. Um, so I do think there there is an argument to suggest that uh, the way in which the speech of major political figures is, is regulated or unregulated has a significant bearing on political discourse within a country. Um, I think it's kind of a chicken and an egg scenario that politicians are reflections of their base, um, but they can also inflame and fire up their base and send them off in new directions and make them do things more aggressively than they otherwise would have done. Absolutely. I think to bring this back to uh, Batley and to sort of try and wrap up, um, we should say that if it's not, in our view, uh, the role of government to try to uh, regulate and influence speech and what is considered offensive and what's not, uh, what is considered racist or blasphemous or offensive, um, it is the job of ordinary citizens to be having these discussions, to be having this dialogue, uh, to be speaking to other members of society who come from very different backgrounds and hold very different beliefs, understanding their beliefs and understanding what they find offensive and, and finding common ground. Yeah, and so in the in the case of Batley, I think we're both in agreement there should be absolutely no legal consequences for the teacher. Uh, whether there are employment consequences depends on the specific kind of codes of conduct and teacher standards of the school that he is part of, um, because like any employment contract, uh, your behaviour is part of that contract and it doesn't have to be illegal behaviour as long as it is something you have contractually agreed not to do. Uh, in the case of the protesters, I think they are perfectly within their rights to protest about what has happened, but again, as we said, not to demand legal consequences for the teacher. In terms of whether the Charlie Hebdo cartoon or the alleged uh, Charlie Hebdo cartoon shown was hate speech, 
uh, it really depends on what the cartoon was and in what context it was shown. And we don't have that information and nor do any of the protesters really. Uh, so we can't speak to that as of now. Um, and finally, in terms of the protesters, again, perfectly within their rights to critique the teacher um, and call for educational consequences against him. Uh, again, something we have to consider is if at any point uh, those criticisms of those of the teacher evolve into what is stochastic harm, um, making it likely that someone will attempt to harm him, then again, that speech may have to be restricted. We certainly haven't managed to cover everything that there is to say about freedom of speech, uh, freedom of speech laws, blasphemy laws, uh, in the last 40 minutes, but that is just about all we have time for, so we should wrap it up there. If there is anything that we've said uh, that you'd like to know more about, if there is anything on this issue that you'd like us to uh, discuss in future episodes, please do get in contact with us. You can do that through Twitter. Uh, our handle is at underscore the violet underscore. You can go to the website, www.theviolet.net, or you can email us at contact.theviolet at gmail.com. Thanks very much for listening, and we we'll hope to see you again soon.